Uh, this is a recording made in the chapter of the open book, and it is number one of a series of studies entitled The Pre-Roma. It is our p- custom at these meetings to read a portion of scripture together. So those of you who are listening to this tape recording, if you care to join us, will you switch off while we read together Second Peter chapter 3. We have just read 2 Peter chapter 3. And Peter casts his mind back to the beginning of the creation. He speaks about the world that then was. He speaks about the world which is now, or the heavens and the earth which are now, and a new heaven and a new earth which is to come. Now this spans the ages. And this word, pleroma, which I have lifted out of the New Testament, is the word which is generally translated fullness. And I think that this thought is behind practically every movement that we discover in this book. There was at the beginning a creation and the second verse of Genesis indicates that some catastrophe happened which we should have to look into as we proceed. It was then followed by a six days creation with a seventh day rest and then the purpose of the ages, which is commencing, runs right through the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, right to the, shall I quote the words, to the last syllable of recorded time. We have a beginning in Genesis 1 verse 1, and we have an end, not in the book of the Revelation, that doesn't take you so far, but we have an end in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You remember the words, then cometh the end when he shall do this, when he shall do that, that God might be all in all. That's the goal of God. That is fullness. In the beginning, when God created, God was all. But at the end, when it's not merely a creation, but a redeemed people, God should be all in all. There's a difference. So we are commencing a study which is practically staggering in its immensity. I suppose we are not exaggerating when we say that every single verse in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation makes a contribution to the question of the pleroma. So if we are thinking about living as long as Methuselah, we may have time to consider every reference. But, of course, we should have to take many things for granted, much in our stride, as we seek to point the way along this pathway. Let me say at the beginning, as far as I'm concerned, eternity does not enter into the story. There's any amount of folks who think that Genesis 1 verse 1 goes right back to the beginning of eternity. Well, that's a contradiction in terms because eternity, if it means anything, has never had a beginning or will never have an end. If you go back in time for as many million years or many million light years as you wish, you'll be just as far off as ever for eternity cannot possibly have a beginning. And if you can understand that, You're a better man than I am, for I don't. God has not burdened our minds with the word eternity. That's been imported into the scriptures. He has given us the ages, which is a limited little slice out of a vast eternity. Now, instead of saying in the beginning, and that's a note on the calendar, no, there's no word the there. It simply says in beginning. And you say, oh, I see This is the beginning of some movement. Yes, it's not the beginning of the universe. 
Well, we don't know. All we know is that at some time, and not very far back, so far as we're concerned, God made a movement with a purpose in view. And that purpose was counter-moved by an enemy. All the way through the story, there are those black streaks. The parable of the wheat and the, uh, of the tares is only symptomatic. All the way through, an enemy has done this. And not until that enemy is completely disposed of do we come to the end. For he says, he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. And then he hands up a perfect universe to the Father that God may be all in all. That's the pre-Roma. Well now, this chart which you have in front of you will be in constant use, and so I'll just give it a little run over. You see, we have the beginning. Not the beginning in the absolute sense, for there is no beginning in the absolute sense. This is only relative. This is just the beginning of this part of the purpose of God with which humanity is concerned. If you ask me what God intends to do with Mars and Mercury and Neptune and the Milky Way, you won't be surprised if I say I haven't got the remotest idea. I've got enough in this Bible to last me until I live as long as I go, and then I should have to admit there are depths and heights that are beyond me. So, all right, in the beginning, the first move that God did was to create heaven and earth. And don't run away with the idea that heaven and earth must be a synonym for the universe. We're importing into it the universe. There may be vast stretches which are beyond what we call either heaven or earth. Leave it as God has said. All right. At the other end, we have 1 Corinthians 15, then cometh the end. So, isn't it good to know we've got it bounded? In spite of all the opposition of the enemy, the end will be reached. But it'll only be reached by the action of a willingly subjected son of God who goes right to the death of the cross if needs be to make it sure and then brings it ultimately back and lays it at the Father's feet that God may be all in all. So that will be impressed upon almost every chapter of this book, the work of the Son in making it possible. You will notice that you'll have uh, on the outside of this chart there is a a golden colour that reaches right up to the very top and down to the other side. That includes the thing, the state of affairs at the very beginning and the state of affairs at the very end and reaches up beyond the present limitations of the heavens above us to where Christ now sits far above all heavens, far above all principality and power. That's to be considered, of course, in its place. And then we have a black streak that goes right along underneath and comes up at the other end. Well, that black streak is Genesis 1, verse 2. The earth became, as it should be translated, without form and void. There was a catastrophe. We should have to go into that because angels fell long before man did. The serpent was already fallen before Adam was created. And at the other end, we read in 2 Peter 3, there's going to be another dissolution, going to pass away with a great noise, and followed by a new heaven that wherein dwelleth righteousness. So now we've got that black streak. Then God starts the present limited heavens and earth, and the ages begin. And so we have uh, Genesis 1 and 2, echoed by the new heaven and the new earth, which comes at the other end. When we do get to Revelation, the book of the Revelation in our study, I should have to draw your attention that instead of saying 
for the first heaven and the first earth are passed away, which would take you back to Genesis 1 verse 1, it doesn't say that. It's the former of two heavens. The former heaven has passed away, that's Genesis 1 and 2 chapters, you see. The limited one, the six-day creation one that passes away. Heaven itself is never going to pass away. But the limited one would say, hey, what about this limited one? Well, you see those blue streaks that look like a pavilion stretched out over the top? That's exactly what they are. And I've given you um, a passage from the uh, prophecy of Isaiah. I don't know whether you can read it from there. The heavens are stretched out as a curtain and spread out as a tent to dwell in. So that when we are looking at the six days creation, we shall see that the word firmament doesn't mean something solid. It means something stretched out and limited heaven, bottling up the battle of the ages so that it won't go running right through the universe. And then, when the battle of the ages is over, the limited heavens will be rolled up like a tent and the, the heaven of heavens will once more be accessible by the mercy of God and the enemy will be completely uh, eliminated. Well, then we get, after the six days creation, we get um, the failure of man in Genesis 3, paradise lost. But you run your, your eye along and you get the earth and its fullness lost and restored, paradise restored. In the book of the Revelation we get the water of life, we get the garden, we get the fruit trees and we get a right to the tree of life, going right back to the tree of life in Genesis 3 which was forfeit and lost. And so on right through this story we get Genesis 6 where Noah is a sort of second Adam and the very words are repeated that were repeat that were given to Adam in the days when Adam was first put upon the earth. God said, "Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth." And when the earth was devastated by the flood and Noah came out into a new world, God said to Noah, "Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth." But Noah never brought it about. He was only another symbol and a type. And so we move along until we get to Abraham, and there we have the uh, focus upon that race that was to come from him, through whom the Messiah was to be born, through whom at last God will use as a kingdom of priests, so that the knowledge of the Lord shall cover the earth as a water cover the seas. And it leads us on to the uh, day where we shall have all that kingdom element expressed in the final phase. And so we come step by step, we get the fullness of the Gentiles when Israel are scattered, in the book of Daniel, the fullness of the Gentiles become in, and right in the very centre, we have the dispensation of the mystery. That's the only dispensation that never has to be picked up and started all over again some other time. During this present parenthetical interval, it's had a break. It was started in the days of Paul the prisoner, and very soon it was neglected and forgotten. But in these last days, God has been pleased to lay the burden on the hearts of some, and a revival of its teaching is going on, but we're still living in the same period. And that is the only company who are raised together and made to sit together where Christ is, at the right hand of God, far above all. Well, that's saying a lot, isn't it? Now, I must add one more piece, although I shall have to go it all over again presently in this series. At the bottom of this chart, uh, you will see... Uh, they're already removed from this one, friends, but on the paper that you will have in front of you looking at this, 
looking at it while you're listening to this tape, you will see at the bottom, uh, at intervals, the sockets. Now, I don't mean to say that I am telling you that this earth is resting upon sockets. It no more rests upon sockets than it rests upon the back of an elephant or whatever else other people have said. But I do know this, that in the symbol this is a precious thought. If the heaven above is likened to a tabernacle, as it is, then God has said to Job, as you can find the passage, he says, upon what are the foundations rested? And the word there, foundations, is used 50 times by Moses to speak of the silver sockets on which the tabernacle rested. So the whole of the present creation of which we form a part is a tabernacle, covered above by a tent, underneath the sockets of redemption, within it the cherubim from Genesis 3 right to the last book of the Bible, Revelation. God is working out a redemptive purpose and that is the real purpose of the Bible. It was never written to teach astronomy or any of the sciences. It was written to tell man that God has a redeeming purpose and it was all focused upon the seed of the woman that should ultimately bruise the serpent's head. Because from the beginning of the Bible record, as we understand it, an enemy has been actively opposing. And he's there active, he's active still, he's active right through the book of the Revelation until the very end. Well now let's turn our attention to terms that are used. And again, we should have to go over these things as we proceed. But this will be a part of the introduction. Our Lord Jesus Christ, it's said of him that in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Well he knew that. He knew why he was sent. He knew what work he had to do. And we are morally certain he would never have used that word fullness to mislead us. If he does use it, he'll use it to lead us, won't he? Surely. So, should we turn to the earliest occurrences of the word fullness in the New Testament? And I go right back to Matthew, the ninth chapter, and a most homely context that you could imagine. A piece of garment that's got a rent in it that, has, that is having to have a patch to fill it up. Would you believe it? And yet that's the first occurrence of the word pleroma in the New Testament. The ninth chapter of Matthew, verse 16. No man putteth a piece of new cloth unto an old garment. For that which is put in to fit it up, taketh from the garment, and the rent is made worse. Now that which is put in to fit it up is the word fullness. So in our Lord's use of it, the fullness is used to counteract a rent that has taken place. Well, We've already indicated that a rent has taken place. In fact, a series of rents have taken place. Because these white strips, they're not the fullness, they're only a lot of fillings. Adam wasn't the fullness, he was only a type of Christ. He was but a filling, marking time, and then there came a rent. And Noah, he was the type of the second man, the last Adam, but he was a failure himself at the finish, you remember. And a rent came again, and start, God started all over again with Abraham. So, this Fullness is that which is going to neutralize and completely obliterate the rent that has come in to the fair creation of God. Well now there's something else if you'll turn to Mark, the ninth chapter and the sixth verse. We are pursuing this word fullness of course you remember. The ninth chapter and the sixth verse. Uh, wait a minute. That looks as though I've slipped up with me references um, 
Now I'll have to look back and get my references here put right. So just hold on for a minute, friends. What is it? Two, is it? Two twenty-one. All right. Well, thank you. I've got a wrench. You see, that's got to be patched up, friends. Um, Mark two twenty-one. No man also soweth a piece of new cloth on an old garment. Uh, the reason why I wanted to turn to this passage was that um, the word "new" is a suggestive word. If you have a marginal reading, it says "raw." or unwrought, but is the word fuller. You remember in the Transfiguration, the garments of our Lord were whiter than any fuller on earth could whiten them. Now, it would be a mistake to say that the word fullness is in any measure associated with the word fuller etymologically. No, no. The fuller, it comes from a different root altogether. But isn't it suggestive? Look, no one will ever be a part of the fullness who has never been fooled. A piece of cloth that's going to be a part of the fullness must go through the bleaching and the twisting and the straining and the pressure that goes to fooling a cloth so that it's completely inert and no longer to do any spoiling. That's your life and mine, friends. That's the reason why we go through it sometimes. We are being treated by the fuller. It may not be a very happy process, but it's got a glorious purpose in it. So there we have that word that's worth a moment's consideration. And then we do look at Luke, the fifth chapter, and the 36th verse. I'll, I'll be breath now in case I've gone wrong again with these figures. Oh, here we are again, once more infallible. Luke, the fifth chapter, and the 36th verse. And he spake also a parable unto them. No man putteth a piece of new garment upon an old. If otherwise, then both the new maketh a rent, and the piece that was taken out of the new agreeeth not with the old. Now, would you like to know what that word agree is? It's our English word symphony. Now, of course, some people can't bear symphonies as they all switch that off. But some people say, my, that's a harmony, that's a wonderful concord of sweet sounds, isn't it? That is a symphony, sounding together. And if you'll turn now quickly to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 14, who introduces his point of view by the very opposite word to the word fullness, he uses the word emptiness, although, of course, we translate it vanity. That is just beyond Psalms and Proverbs. Chapter 7, 14. He says, vanity of vanities. God says, fullness ultimately, but vanity covering the interval. Chapter 7, verse 14. In the day of prosperity be joyful, but in the day of adversity consider. God also hath set the one over against the other, to the end that no man, that man should find nothing after him. God hath set the one over against the other, where the Greek version of the Old Testament uses our word symphony. And in the first chapter, he seems to have something of the same idea. In the first chapter of Ecclesiastes, he says in verse 9, the thing that hath been is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. And then people say he was all wrong. But you see, he's talking about the long waiting for this purpose to come. The groan of creation. 
Oh, will it take place now? Adam failed, but oh, look at Noah, what a fine man he was. No. Oh, but what about Abraham? He was a believer. Oh, oh no. See, it's all pointing to the fullness of time. And that's when Christ came. And the fullness of seasons, that's when he's going to head it all up in himself. And in the interval and waiting, it's vanity and vexation of spirit. Don't be surprised that all your plans and purposes don't come to fruition. Don't think you're marked by God as someone separate for the Apostle Peter says, always oh, as the light, the light things are happening on your brethren in the world as you're going through. We're in a pilgrimage. We're going through a battlefield. We're going home through a wilderness. And sometimes it won't be very pleasant. And God said to the children of Israel, I suffered thee to hunger as well as I gave you bread from heaven. He said, I did both. That you may know that man doth not live by bread alone. I allowed you to have some of these disappointments. Somebody once wrote a little tract. Of course, it's so easy to write for somebody else. But he wrote a little tract and he said, I spelled disappointment by the word his appointment. It makes a difference, friends, if you can only do it out of a real heart, doesn't it? Of course, don't bolster yourself up and pretend you're agreeing, but it is so fine to realise that nothing can ever come to your life or mine that is outside of his control. And we're all sharing in this conflict of the ages, the conflict between light and darkness. And God himself is a tent dweller, he says, you are strangers and pilgrims with me. And until the journey is over, he himself says, I will never leave thee, neither will I forsake thee. And so we've got a companion all the way. Well now that so far gives us a little idea of the scope of the subject we're considering. This pleroma, dealing with the whole working out of the purpose of the ages. Now I don't know quite exactly how much time I've got left, but I think I've got enough to just skim through, without doing justice to the passages, the way in which they are distributed in the New Testament. Then I think I've made an introduction to this subject. We can then go back and take piece by piece, uh, gently as we may, and expand it as far as time will permit us. So we start with John's Gospel, the first chapter, and the 16th verse. This is where we get the word fullness in a doctrinal sense in the Gospels. Let's get a little idea as to how it's introduced. It says in verse 14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt in a tent among us. Notice that. It's not merely to dwell, it's to tabernacle. It's to dwell in a tent. It's still continuing the idea of something that's moving and transitory and not going to last. That's what I say they did. He left the glory and he became a tent dweller like Abraham was willing to be a tent dweller because of the glory that was coming. So the word was made flesh and dwelt in a tabernacle among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 16. And of his fullness have all we received and grace for grace. A complicated passage, but I will just anticipate our studies presently by telling you the word for, in grace, for grace, is the word anti. It's a pair of scales word. You put grace in one pan, and you put the other in the other, and you make them balance. So what does he mean by grace for grace? Well, you see, there are some people who stuck there, and they won't go any further. But if they read the next verse, John is telling you. I'll tell you what I mean by grace over against grace. For the law was given by Moses. That's one sort of grace. That's type and shadow grace. Very blessed to have type and shadow to point to Christ. 
But how much more blessed to have the real thing. So he says, for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth, the real thing, came by Jesus Christ. So there's fullness. Instead of type and shadow, we've got reality in Christ. Isn't that fine? That's where the fullness starts. Now shall we come to Galatians, the fourth chapter. I'm sorry I can't stop on these, but we shall stop on them in the pursuing of this matter in the course of our studies. Galatians 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem. That made of a woman takes you back to Genesis 3. This is the seed of the woman promised in the first great prophecy of the Bible. But you say, what a long time to wait, 4,000 years. Oh, yes, for us it is. But what's 4,000 years when measured by the eternity of God? Immeasurable. He says, what is your life? It's like a vapor. A thousand years like a day. We could only say that he knew when it was the fullness of time. But aren't we glad that there was a time? And nothing could stop that coming, could it? Even the Roman Emperor, Caesar Augustus, who didn't know God and had no knowledge of the Bible, sent out a decree that all the world should be taxed and so Mary and Joseph had to pack up and move from Nazareth and go back to Bethlehem in order that God's word should be fulfilled that the Messiah should be born nowhere else except Bethlehem. That Roman emperor didn't know that he was being used by God. Neither do many others beside. But that's what God can do. The fullness of time. I'm going to anticipate another passage to, to line up with this. Ephesians 1 verse 10. Ephesians 1 verse 10 That in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ. Now you might think that this is much the same but there is a difference. In Galatians 4 it is time and in Galatians in Ephesians 1 it is times with an S on the end. Now the first word is the word chronos which comes into our word chronicle uh, chronological and sometimes I breathe to myself that this pain I have in one of my legs is chronic because it lasts all the time. You see? That's the meaning. Chronos means time. By the clock. A certain time had come in the working out of God's purpose. But in Ephesians 1 it isn't time. It's the word season. And the word season means something which is opportune. Something which is just exactly right. And so it's used of springtime. And sowing. And harvest and reaping. That's the idea. There's a day coming when the harvest will be ripe, and the season will have come to gather the fruits of redeeming love. Won't it be good if you're there and I'm there, friends, to have a part in it anywhere? But we do know we have a part if we've already put our trust in him and believed his most wonderful gospel. So there we have then this double emphasis upon time. And do remember that time is a factor. You cannot eliminate it. If I were to ask you in the opening of Christ's ministry, what was the first thing he spoke of? Would you know? When it says that he began to preach the gospel in Mark's gospel, chapter 114, he said, the time is fulfilled. That was a part of his message. That's a part of his message, that the time was now fulfilled, that God had promised when he should come and speak. Oh yes, never before, but never behind. And again, you remember in Luke, the fourth chapter, when he stood up in the synagogue and read a portion from the prophet Isaiah, shut the book, sat down, and he said, this day 
Is this scripture fulfilled in your ears? This day? If you go to one of the big railway stations like Euston or King's Cross or any of them, you'll see a notice board up and it's got a bit printed over the top. So many hours late or whatever it is. So many minutes late. They've got it all ready because they know full well any amount of times there will be reasons to hold up the progress and they have to advertise that it's late, it's late, it's late. But isn't it good to know that God has never been behind time? You and I ought to remember he'll never be in front. If you have a prayer meeting going on night, ten, day, never leaving him alone. If you had relay prayer meetings, he'll never alter his plan by one single minute. That's badgering God, that's not praying. I know some people have a very different idea. They think if they make people get up early in the morning and stop up late at night, God's going to change his, never change his mind for anybody. It would be a terrible thing if he did. I always remember the wise a little bit in the rabbinical literature of old uh, Hebrew when one son said to the mother, oh mother, pray that it may pour in rain today because whatever his job was. And the other son came in and says, mother, do pray that the sun shines well today because of his job. And she said, I'll do neither, I'll leave it to the Lord and his wisdom. That's the best thing. Sometimes, friends, it'd be better if we should remember the text, we know not what to pray for as we ought instead of making prayer an opportunity to tell God what he ought to do. Oh, that's only just in parentheses. Forget it, if needs be. Now, Ephesians 1, 22. This is again the exalted, ascended Christ, and has put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body. Oh, what a title for a, for a believer, for a company of redeemed sinners. The church which is his body, the fullness of him who in his turn filleth all things. Could you believe it? You'd hardly believe it if it weren't written in the scriptures. That is the final title of this church. The fullness of him who in his turn fills all things. And we're told in the, uh, the fourth chapter that he ascended up, verse 10, Yes, he descended, same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. But there's another one waiting for us in chapter 3, verse 17. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. Now this is vast, friends. This is beyond us. If anybody here can tell me what is breadth and length and depth and height, I'll be glad, for I don't know. But you say, sure, oh, but wait a minute. As far as the east is from the west, so far have I put your transgressions from you. How far is the east from the west, friends? What do you say? What part of the east? I thought so. This is immeasurable. This isn't a plot of land. This is east and west, in God's estimate. What is breadth and length? and depth, and height. In the ordinary way, we only want three measurements. You know, some of us are in the, in the muddle of moving from one house to another. So we're going over the house, measuring the rooms. But however particular we are, I don't find any one of us saying, what is the breadth, and length, and depth, and height. All we want is three measurements. Length, breadth, height, that's the end. But here's immensely, we're right in the middle of it. Here is the breadth, and length, and depth, and height. When Abraham walked through his inheritance, he walked through the length of it and the breadth of it, flat. When the New Jerusalem is described, the breadth of it and the length of it and the height are equal. But when you get our calling, my, it's beyond measure. 
If you understand the fourth dimension, you're a clever man. I don't. I can only know that it's a possible mathematical affair. Here it is. Now, this is all leading on to this immensity. That ye might be fueled. Now, our version says, with all the fullness of God. Well, that's a physical impossibility. No more than a child standing on the seashore can put the Atlantic into its little pile. But what that child can do, it can half fill its pile, or it can fill its pile. That's the meaning. This is not filled with, but filled up to, or unto, all the fullness of God. We are all partakers of that fullness. And we have got our own limitations. The Apostle Paul was a bigger earthen vessel than ever I could be. But he had an obligation that his bigger vessel should be filled to the brim. And if my little vessel is filled to the brim, I'm on the same level as himself. Just as the man who had two talents and got two talents was exactly the same percentage as the man who had ten talents and got ten. So we've got now fullness with regard to our gold in front of us. And then in Colossians chapter 1, 19, and this morning I was comparing the Ephesians and Philippians and I made one omission, among many omissions. I ought to have said that in Ephesians it's fullness with a blessing attached to it and in Philippians it's emptiness with blessing attached to it. For the words he made himself of no reputation is the word he emptied himself. And I mentioned that but I never made the connection. So that's a little bit thrown in. Whether it be the riches of Christ or his very poverty, it's the basis of all our hopes. Well now, Colossians 1.19, it says, verse 16, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church. Now we're starting again who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things, in both creations, old and new, he might have the preeminence, for it was well-pleasing that in him should all the fullness dwell. Now chapter 2, verse 8. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. Strictly speaking, a vain, deceitful philosophy. True philosophy could never be vain and deceitful because it's a love of wisdom. But then we've got distorted minds and we don't know everything, so we go astray. It's rather remarkable that there are just one, there's one passage that speaks of philosophy, and one passage which speaks about science, and one passage which speaks about art. You'll find them, one about art is in Acts 17, science is in the first of Timothy, and here we have philosophy. And they're all not after Christ. They can't do it. They can't be a substitute. And so he says, Beware lest any man spoil you through a vain, deceitful philosophy. And of course, if you don't know the word vain means empty. See, if you don't know the word vain means empty, you're not quite so hit by the word fullness that comes, are you? So here it comes. Philosophy is empty after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are filled to the full in him. That's the word complete. So why worry about an empty philosophy that's speculating about the beginning of things and the nature of God, or whether there is a God or whatnot, when you've got it all in Christ. 
completely and forever. And chapter 2, that's chapter 2 verse 8. And the other, one other reference which has a dispensational setting is in Romans the 11th chapter, verse 12 and 25. And that will practically bring us round to the end of this present study. Romans 11, he's speaking about the failure of the part of Israel. He says in verse 11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Oh, God forbid. But rather through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. Now, if the fall of them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? So, there is a time coming when poor scattered Israel, blind as they are now, shall have their eyes open and look upon him whom they pierced. They shall become a nation, a kingdom of priests. They will enter into their fullness. So he says, how much more their fullness? And then, again, in verse 25, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness, in part, is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written. There shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes, for the gifts of calling of God are without a change of mind without repentance. Well, that has a, been a run-over of this gigantic expression, the word pleroma. We have sketched out, by the use of this chart and by a few simple explanations, something which is awaiting us. Now it will mean that we should have to go into the intricate details a bit more carefully as testing links in a chain. And we shall naturally have to start right back at the beginning and work our way through, and I do trust, that by the time we finish this series on the Pleroma, we shall have our hearts that will be glad and rejoice to think that ever God planned it, and above all things else, that he ever stooped to give us a place in it.